If you are a follower of Jesus, if you look at your life and you say, I want to participate in what God is doing in this world, you have to be willing to give your life completely over to Him. But how many times do you look and feel like you can't get there? You can't grab it because of these things that are chains on you or in your hands and you have to drop them. Now listen to this. This is the thing that has been taught over and over again in Scripture. It's a warning that we see over and over again to change our perspective. It's a tension that has been a part of the story of humanity since the very beginning. The tension to trust God and to, to, to follow God with our whole lives or choose our own priorities. In Matthew 6, Jesus said this. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not stir, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If we have our eyes truly focused on the eternal, are we living like it? Have we made that shift in our priorities in the way that we live? Do, do we see the choices that we make as being tied to that? Is that really where our hearts are? That's what he's asking. He goes on, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is one of those fascinating texts. I feel like verse 24 would be a lot easier if Jesus just would have stopped. He could have just said, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other. You'll be doing to one and despise the other. And I wish that we could just fill in the blank. He's, if he had just said, you cannot serve both God and go ahead and fill in the blank. Like if Jesus had done that, I just feel like this would be simpler. Because then I could fill it with the things that I tend to you know, not want to. You know, I could fill this in with stuff that's easy for me. Oh, okay. I, I can't serve both my job and God. That's easy. I can do I can I, I like that. I can't serve both my boss and God. Yeah, I can do that. I like that. That works well. Okay, okay. I push it a little bit and you know, I, I can't serve both food and God. That's fine, I can do that, you know. Like this is easy, right? But see, he makes it hard. He puts this in here. He makes it hard for all of us, for preachers and for all of us listening today. He says you cannot serve both God and money. Now, there's an important word found in this verse. It's the Greek word doulos. Uh, here it gets translated serve. Like any word, it's used in all kinds of different contexts. But it can mean a few different things. It can mean devotion. Uh, it can mean service. It can mean ownership. It can also mean kind of a blend of all of those things at one time, like I think it does in this verse. See, for some of us, our struggle with money has to do with feeling like it owns us. 
the lack of it, or the leverage of it, places debt on us. It limits our financial freedom, creates stress that tears at us. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands because I think we've all felt at one time that our money has owned us. For others, we fought the fight to assume control over our finances, and we've gone the other direction. Trying to avoid being owned by our money, we've swung the pendulum in the other way, trying to attain this thing called rich. And the problem with this is that rich is a moving target. You can never actually hit, but you can spend your whole life trying. Rich is this thing, and I know this sounds crazy, but rich is this thing we'll never attain. But we can hit, try our whole life trying to hit that target. And these two realities reveal to us this. Money is a pathetic God. The God of money is an idol that is built on the fear of scarcity and the lie of never enough. And we all have experienced that, haven't we? That we look at, we look at money and we see that it's just an idol. It's built on fears of scarcity and a lie of never enough. It's an idol because it was never meant to be a God in the first place. And if we're going to topple that idol, we need a better way to look at money. We have to learn to put money in its right place. See, here's the deal. Money isn't the problem. Wealth isn't the problem. Security, satisfaction, significance are not the problem. The problem is when we falsely attribute those things to money. It is okay to seek security. It is okay to seek satisfaction. It is okay to to seek significance. But we're supposed to put those things in our relationship with God, not anything else. And more often than not, we put our security, our satisfaction, our significance in our money. We think that we can buy security. We think we can buy satisfaction. We think that we can buy significance. And we create an idol. And money becomes an obstacle into our full devotion to God. And so we have to make a change. And this is what I want us to explore over the next two weeks. I believe that learning how to make this change will have a tremendous impact on your life and on the work that God is calling us to do together. Now, to make change, you have to do two things, right? To make any kind of impactful change in your life, you have to do two things. And you realize this because we just talked about it, because we're just out of January, and we all have given up on these things called resolutions. And in December, you did one of these things, and in January, you promised you were going to do the other. The first one in December is you looked at your life, and you maybe looked at the regrets that we had. You looked at your time. You looked in the mirror at your body. You looked at your relationships. You looked at things and you said, I need to make a change. Now, I'm going to scan my eyes as quickly as I can because I don't want you to think that I'm pointing to anybody in particular and thinking about the resolution that maybe you need to make, but you know the resolution that you needed to make. And you looked at it and you said, I have to assess what I've got. And this is hard. 
Because you look at your time and you realize, I don't have a whole lot of it. You look at your weight and you realize, I got a whole more of that than I want, right? And you look at all these areas of your life and you see that I have to figure out what I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with it. So that's the first thing you have to do when you're making change. You have to look at your life and you have to say, what do I have? What are my assets in this particular area? And then you say to yourself, and what am I going to do with it? December is all about assessing your assets and what you've got. And January is about saying, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to change my habits. I'm going to change the way that I do things. I'm going to put some feet to the vision that I have for my life, right? So that's what we have to do when we're making change. We have to start by assessing these things, and then we have to apply it. We're going to correct the imbalance of our lives, and that's what I want us to do about money and remove that spiritual roadblock that so many of us struggle with throughout our lives. So let's start with the assessment part. Listen to this perspective on money. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, King David is with the Israelite community. They're preparing to build the temple that God has given them the vision for. And they gather together, and they begin to, to give towards that and see what they can do together as a community. And David makes a statement. It's brilliant. It's all about assessing and understanding what they've got. Listen to this. He says, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hand are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. See, David is saying, God, in you, we find security. God, God, in you, we find satisfaction. God, in you, we find significance, but only in you. Now, our God, we give you thanks, and we praise your glorious name. Now, listen, listen, listen where he goes next. So he's assessing He's looking, he's realizing, he's saying, I can't find satisfaction, I can't find significance, I can't find security in anything else, all of that is you. And then from that he says this, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And King David is introducing us to the principle of stewardship. Recognizing that we are managers, managers of the resources that God has so graciously given us. The trees, the crops, the oceans, the air that we breathe all come from God. The money that we have lacks inherent value until it represents the use of the resources that God has so graciously given us. That's why you can look at your kids when they're little and they look at you and they say, Mommy, I want that thing right there. I want that Lego, I want that Barbie, I want to go on this vacation, I want this stuff, right? And then you say, do you think money grows on trees? Or you've looked at your husband before and your husband looked at you and said, why can't we do this? I really want to do this thing. I want this car. She says, you think money grows on trees? Do you think that's how it works? Now, for some of us, we still live in that world. 
we kind of assume that money grows on trees, but the reality is that as we grow up, as we mature, we start to see that that's not where money comes from. That money comes from this incredible reality of this economy that's built on all of these other things, built upon the resources of the world and the way that our time is spent and the way that we use the resources of our world. And he takes it a step further. And he says, it's not just that, it's that these resources, they're God's to begin with. That they're not ours. See, our perspective has persuaded us to worship the idol of scarcity and never enough. And it's time to try something different, to see things in a different way. Most of us have grown up with a skewed perspective on money. From our first birthday card with five bucks in it, to our first paycheck, to everything since, the first thing that we tend to go is, it's mine! This is mine! And this is how my kids act. They say, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And we're supposed to mature and be different and look different and realize it's not ours to begin with. King David says, try something different. He says, try something different. The assessment is that we don't own anything. So now here's the bigger question. If we don't own it to begin with, if that's our December reality about the finances and the resources of this world, what is the January resolution? What is the feat that we're going to put to that particular vision? It takes faith to see it's all God's stuff. But what do we do about it? In Genesis 4, there's a story. And there's a principle that we find here. It comes from an application. Here's the story. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil, and in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, Abel went to his flocks, he was careful, he chose the fattest animal, the best, and this animal was the most valuable to him. It took time to select the animal, he, he had to choose from it. And Abel was left with an entire flock, but you see what he did? He gave God his first. And Cain wasn't nearly as purposeful. Instead of selecting the best, he chose the sum. Cain gave God what he believed to be his leftovers. And what we're doing today is we're looking at a grand thread throughout the scripture. We're looking at this topic in a systematic way. And the author of the story is placing a thread here that weaves throughout the scriptures. And that thread is the idea that God isn't looking for the leftovers from our lives. The ancient Israels saw this, not because God needed it, because they did. They recognize that it takes faith to give first. It doesn't take faith to give last. And they gave first because it was their way of saying, we have to somehow create some guardrails so that we don't get outside this lane that it's all God's to begin with. They said, if I don't set up some guardrails in my life, my tendency is to, for my security and my significance and my satisfaction to come from all sorts of other things. And worst of all, to think that it's based on me somehow. That somehow my satisfaction, somehow my security is found in me. 
And they said, what if we put some guardrails up that helped us to see that none of that comes from us, that it all comes from God because every single thing starts with him. And so they were brilliant. And they created this guardrail in their lives that stopped them right at the very beginning. That when they looked at God and they said, it is all yours and how can I show that? They said, I'll give my first. I'll set it up to realize that none of this is mine to begin with, but that everything else I have is so graciously given to me from you. The application develops here is this principle that we call tithing. There are countless passages in tithing. Even Jesus talked about tithing. But I want to look at this in a systematic way. I want to talk about this over the course of the next couple of weeks through a couple of different passages. And I want us to go back to an ancient book of Leviticus, chapter 27, verse 30. Now listen to this. This is just one place that they talk about this and that they apply this principle. They say a tithe of everything comes from the land. Whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. So what happened was that the story of Cain and Abel began to be shared among this community of the followers of God. And they began to look and understand there was this principle of guardrails that was being set up. And as they began to look at that, they said, well, what does that look like and how do we live that principle out? How, how, how do we do that? What do we do with this idea of first fruits? How do we make that work? And somebody brilliant, some math mind that wasn't one of these guys that wanted to try to figure out how many cattle to do and how to do this and what to do with the fruit and all of this said, what if we did this? What if we gave 10% to God? What if we gave that to him first as this first fruits example that was passed down to us from the story of Cain and Abel? So that, again, hear this, so that we can have a guardrail in our lives so that our satisfaction, our security, and our significance doesn't get tied up with our own story, but is instead tied up with God's. I want you to hear this very clearly over the next couple weeks. This is not me reading something in the scriptures and saying, this is a commandment, and if you don't live this way, you're headed to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they have placed a guardrail here that helps us to understand our lives in such a different way so that we can grab on to what God has for our lives and not be strapped back to the chains that we put upon us when we start to have a wrong understanding of money. This is us saying, look, we have to have a better understanding of money and I need a way to put feet to vision. That's the principle that we find in the passage here. Now, here's where this gets challenging. This doesn't look so hard when we're talking about bananas, apples, grain, or cattle. I don't have a lot of stuff that I'm growing. I'm not really growing a whole lot of bananas, apples, grain, or cattle. Are you? However, if you read on in this passage in Leviticus, it gets kind of interesting. You'll see that there was a caveat here. They had an option. Say they weren't banana growers or apple growers or cattle growers or grain growers. They had an option to give money in exchange. And it's like, man, I thought that was the way out of this thing. I thought I could just bring some bananas. He says, no, listen. So now we're seeing where this is going to get a little hard for us. What if you make $25,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 a year? 
and you start about exchanging your bananas for money and that kind of numbers, all of a sudden you're going to see how faith is caught up with tithing. How tithing requires trust and faith and obedience no matter how much or how little you have. Now do you see how this affects your relationship with God? And before anybody says, well, what's the difference between my $1,500 and somebody else's $10,000, right? This is a percentage thing. That person who gives that $10,000, that must mean a bigger deal, right? But that's the brilliance of this. That's why I think this is amazing. If, if I wrote this, I would say this is the level. You know, if I was God, and it's a good thing I'm not God, right? But if I was God, I'd say this is the level and the first people at this level, yeah, I'll let you in. The second people at the next level, I'll be like, yeah, you did an even better job. Thank you for stepping up to that level, right? I mean, this is how we do fundraising today. We talk about the bronze table and the silver table and the gold table, right? We all want to sit at the gold table where we did the most fundraising and made the most statement. But that's not what he does here. Something else happens, and they start working in percentages. I think this is brilliant. Because when you work in percentages, things begin to change. And this shows us something about God and something about the way the people understood their relationship with God. That it's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. Percentage giving is a principle that allows us to manage, celebrate, and respond to what God has placed in our hands. I think this is amazing. Percentage giving is an opportunity to manage what we have. It's an opportunity to celebrate. How many people get tired of billionaires who say, look at everything that I have given. What's cool about that, what's interesting about it is that we found that when a billionaire says, I'm giving $50,000 to this project, we go, that's a lot of money because I don't have $50,000. But then you realize, you start to do the math and realize that's like me giving $10. It's not the same. It's not the size of the gift. It's the sacrifice. The equality isn't found in the gift. It's found in the sacrifice. Tithing is an act of faith that helps us keep our priorities straight. It reminds us that we don't own anything in this life. That God is in control and we're only the managers of what he's given us. An application that has literally stood the test of time. And here's what I want you to hear. If you don't take anything else away from this sermon today, I hope you hear this. There is a God who loves you. A God who doesn't want you to live your life trapped and consumed by the fear and desire of money. God wants you to be free from the hold that money can put on you. Tithing has nothing to do with earning God's love. It's about responding to God's love with your earning. Tithing has nothing to do with earning God's love. It's about responding to God's love with your earning. And I get it. If this is your first time hearing about tithing, or if this is your 50th time hearing about the idea of tithing, 
it sounds crazy. It sounds absolutely insane that we would say, I'm going to give the first 10% of what I have earned. Tithing seems crazy. But so does believing in a God who loves you and knows you by name. But I still believe that. I believe that about every single person in this room. If the vision of your life is to follow Jesus, to participate in what God is doing in your church, in your community, in your world, money cannot be an idol or a chain. Money can't be where you find security, satisfaction, or significance. All of that is found in God. So here's the question. Will you take the challenge to move beyond a recognition of the need for change when it comes to how you see money? Or will you reprioritize to experience the shift that God wants to see in your heart? The question is, are you just going to simply look at the mirror and make an assessment and realize that we have to do something? Or will you actually do something with it? Will we look like the rich man who looked at God and said, God, I want to participate in what you're doing in this world? Will we just ask the question and then will we get the answer? Will we just walk away sad and full of regret? Our church will never make an impact in the way that we desire it to make in this world if our lives don't look different than that rich man if our lives don't look like people who are willing to say, I have seen the eternal God calling me to a vision of life that is way beyond finding satisfaction and security and significance in my own life. I have found satisfaction and significance in that life, and I want to take hold of it with everything I have. Will we put the guardrails in place to do that? As we close up, I, I want to introduce something to you. Because, as we talked about this, we said, you can assess what you've got or you can do something about it. You can say that I want to make a change with my life when it comes to my physical health or you can get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and begin to do some push-ups and sit-ups and working out, right? You've got to make a decision to do one of those things. So we decided we have to put some feet to this. We're calling this the 730-90 challenge. And I get it, it sounds a little corny, and I wasn't sure about that, but then I realized this is too important, and I'm willing to be a little corny. It's a way for us to put, as a community, to put into action what we're learning. 730-90 is a challenge to those who don't yet tithe, to trust God to enable you to begin tithing in a stepwise fashion. We're going to pass these out real quick. Suzanne and Ben, I think, have these flyers, and I want to walk through these real quick. For those of you who are listening online, on our podcast, I invite you to, to go to wearesoutheast.org slash making-change. For those of us who are physically here, I want you to check out this information that we have. And 
Now, I'm going to prayerfully encourage you to read through this entire document. I realize there's a lot here. I know some of your personalities, and I realize that you're already starting to read through it before I even talk about it. But I, I encourage you to prayerfully read through this entire document, but I want to highlight a few pieces of this important challenge. Step one of the 73090 challenge is on March 1st. On March 1st, we are going to have a celebration of the vision of Southeast and where we're headed as a church. What does this year, next year, the coming years look like, and how will we get there together? What is it going to look like for us as a church? Where are we headed? What are we doing, and where are we going? And during this celebration, we're going to have what is called a Tide Demonstration Sunday. And it's an invitation for everyone who calls Southeast their church home to give one week's tithe on this Sunday. 10% of weekly household income. And here's the reason. The purpose is to demonstrate what our potential could be if every household in our church family tithed. What would happen? What, What would we be able to do together as a church family? Then steps two and three are to continue giving a tithe in faith through the month and then through the next 90 days. And they're all steps of faith. But that first step of faith is tithe demonstration Sunday on March 1st. So here's the question. What happens when we give, and what is the end goal? Well, first of all, as your pastor, here's my end goal. I am not a financial advisor. I am a spiritual advisor. I can look at your life, and I can say, this is what we need to do as a community, because you can't be tied to these things. Next week, we're going to talk about what does it look like when we begin to do that, and how does that action step begin to change all sorts of other areas of life? But here's what I do know. I want to see us changed. I want to see us changed. To put into action what we're learning here. To not just simply say, that sounds like a really great idea, but to actually believe it and do something about it. It's a step together toward our future. So here's what's really cool about this. Every dollar given above our budget and need during the 730-90 challenge will be viewed as the seed of a future fund to help us dream about the permanent home of Southeast. You're going to see in there that it says this, as it stands, our budget is built on anticipated income. And to date, that income has never allowed us the opportunity to take a seriously look at our future and where we're going. But what if we came together in faith through our tithes and offerings? And what if we began to dream big together? And here's what I mean by that. What if you began to dream big about your life and how your life would change if you changed the attitude that you have towards money? What would it look like in your life if you stopped looking for satisfaction, for security, for significance in your own life and you put in a guardrail to protect yourself from falling down that cliff and instead giving your life all the way over to Jesus? What would that look like? If you began to say, my life is going to look different, I'm not going to live the same way. I'm no longer going to have an idol of money. I'm not going to be caught in the never is enough or the scarcity mindset anymore. I'm going to trust that all of it comes from God. What would happen to our lives if we began to see it all comes from God? That's why this matters so much. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you hear this today and you say, I have lived my life searching for significance and security and satisfaction on my own for far too long. And it is time to trust that there is a God who loves me 
And I can find my security, my satisfaction, my significance in him. That he gave Jesus as an example for me to follow. Who died on a cross because of our sin. We can give our lives to him and have him be the Lord of our lives instead of us being the Lord of our own lives. And maybe today you make that decision. I'm going to change my life and I'm going to begin to follow. And if you're a Jesus follower today, what would it look like to make that step putting in that guardrail and saying together, as a community of people together, we're going to come together in the most significant, incredible way, making an impact and seeing a vision for our future as a church. Let's pray. God, as we close up today, Father, we thank you for the challenging topics that we find in Scripture. God, we thank you for the places that we have to lean in a bit harder. Because, Father, we have discovered here at this church that as we lean in, that that's where true change happens. God, help us to grab hold of the mercy, the forgiveness, the love, and the grace that you so desire for the world. God, help us to drop greed. Help us to drop pride. Help us to see that to hold on to those things, to grab grace and forgiveness and mercy and love God, that we need hands that are open to recognize that it all comes from you. Father, I pray that over the next couple weeks as we look at this and we see what we can do together, God, that you would open the floodgates and you would show in our personal lives and in our lives as a community together we can change our lives and make significant impact. It's your name that we pray. Amen.